Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Welcome to season three. We are delighted to have you with us, and we look forward to continuing to provide quality content about our Missouri. Today's episode serves as not only the opening of season three, but also to the start of a multi-part series on border wars. We will spend the first part of season three exploring the conflicts that define Missouri's borders and boundaries, as well as the state's role in the Civil War and its aftermath. Our guest today is Amy Laurel Fluker. She holds a PhD in history from the University of Mississippi and presently serves as the Robert W. Weider I Professor of 19th Century American History at Youngstown State University in Ohio. Her book, Commonwealth of Compromise, Civil Wars Commemoration in Missouri, was published by the University of Missouri Press in 2020. She will be the featured speaker at the State Historical Society of Missouri's fall lecture on November 7th. And due to COVID-19, the fall lecture will be a virtual event so please visit shsmo.org for more information on how to register and to attend the program. Welcome to our Missouri, Amy. Thank you, thank you for having me, I'm excited. Now, tell us a little bit about the origins of your book project. Oh man, so this has been a project and in some ways I feel like I've been working on my whole life, starting with you know uh, my childhood, growing up just really being immersed in Missouri history and. My uh, parents were really wonderful about always, you know, taking me to local historic sites and Civil War reenactments. And so um, by the time I went to college and started studying history, um, I was definitely drawn towards topics in Missouri history and uh, Civil War history in particular. And uh, got a little distracted when I went to grad school and uh, ended up working on a project on the Harry S. Truman Library. So still dealing with Missouri history, but I couldn't really decide what period I wanted to focus on. Um, and when it came time to start on my dissertation, my advisor told me, you know, better pick something that you <laughs> that you love. And uh, Civil War history in Missouri was always something I came back to. So I guess that's really the, you know, the concrete origins of this project was in my uh, work for my dissertation as a PhD student at the University of Mississippi. Um, and when I finished that project, um, I felt like you know, scholarship had already reached a point where the things that I had been trying to establish in the dissertation um, weren't necessarily as important anymore, that there was a new direction to go in. So when I started thinking about the book, I thought what I was um, more interested in was continuing this um, investigation of how Civil War veterans and members of the Civil War generation in Missouri thought about and remembered their wartime experiences, because that had been a part of the dissertation, but it's sort of all been lumped into a single chapter. And I thought that that was something I could spend more time expanding and exploring. And I thought the book would be a great uh, means of, of doing that. So what was initially sort of one chapter in the dissertation became um, the middle three chapters of this new book. Okay. 
Now, in a book project, you know, and in a dissertation, you're, you're consulting a lot of archives and a lot of materials um, to kind of get through that. Before jumping into kind of the, the sources you look through for this particular project, what's the first Civil War, you know, monograph or even materials you were engaging with as a kid that really drives this interest in Civil War history? That's a great question. You know, I, I know one of the books I've had for the longest time, and it's still on my bookshelf in my office today, is a little volume on Jesse James. And I'm pretty sure it was written by Bob Dyer, who was, you know, sort of a local historian and folk artist from the Boonville area and uh, grew up listening to the music that he produced and um, folk songs, Missouri history. And somehow I got a, a hold of a little volume that he contributed to on Jesse James. And that's one I've had for as long as I can remember. <laughs> um, in grad school, though, I think what reignited my interest in Missouri's history, I was assigned a book called Inside War by Michael Fellman that deals with the guerrilla conflict. And he was one of the first professional historians to take Missouri seriously as a theater of the Civil War and to take the guerrilla conflict seriously. And as much as I enjoyed reading his book, I felt like as a Missourian, I had a very different reaction to the subject than he did. Not that, not that he was wrong, but I felt like he was missing parts of the story that didn't gel with my sort of lived experiences of having grown up in the state. Um, and so that, again, that, that sort of reawakened that childhood interest. Okay. Now, as you're doing the project, both in the dissertation stage and as, as you get into the book, book stage, you know, where are you going for archival material? What are you pulling out to do a lot of this research? So most of the time that I was researching this book project, I was in um, the State Historical Society of Missouri um, in the, the reading room there and used a lot of reference collections um, and used a lot of manuscript collections as well. The Louis Benneke collection was phenomenally useful for me to understanding what <clears throat> particularly union veterans were doing um, to commemorate their Civil War experiences in Missouri. Um, and Benneke was also heavily involved with the Federal Soldiers Home in St. James, having been on their uh, board of managers for years. And so um, his manuscript collections were really valuable. And then of course, there's a wealth of collections from across the different state historical society repositories from Rolla to Kansas City and, and everywhere in between um, where various clubs or chapters of Civil War veterans organizations um, had, you know, donated their minutes and their proceedings to the archives. So those collections were, were really useful too. Um, but the reference collections, as I mentioned, were also extremely useful because the two statewide organizations for Civil War veterans, um, the Grand Army of the Republic for Union veterans and the United Confederate veterans, obviously for the Confederates, published their um, proceedings from their state meetings each year. And so those were in the, the collections there at the State Historical Society as well. And those were invaluable um, in terms of having membership numbers and records of what those societies were up to, the projects they were engaged in um, and things of that nature. So those were, those were um, absolutely the sort of the heart and soul of the book. And, you know, as much time as I spent in Columbia researching, uh, you know, as I said, when I began researching this project, I was living in Mississippi at first and then moved to Ohio. So a lot of this research was done 
remotely and in that respect the digital newspaper collections that the state historical society has assembled were invaluable i mean i spent hours again you know a thousand miles away <laughs> uh pouring through those newspapers and finding interesting um anecdotes about what what veterans were doing to commemorate the war and what missourians were doing again to celebrate their their contributions to the war and since we've both grown up in Missouri, you know, as Missourians, there's that kind of question about what is Missouri? Is it a northern state, a southern state? You know, even dialects and language has certain, you know, drawls and 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 certain uh, elements to it. But something that was interesting early on in the in the book is you mentioned that Missourians in this period of the 19th century would have seen themselves as Westerners more than Northerners, Southerners, or even you know Easterners. Um, how did you come to that conclusion that they were viewing themselves as Westerners? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. That was one of the fun things too that that started, you know, me thinking about this project as a grad student. Again, as you mentioned, growing up in Central Missouri and then moving to Mississippi, I thought, "Whoa, this is a different, <laughs> this is a different world." And you know, why is that? And then, you know, I was just sort of paying attention to general kind of cultural indications around me. You know, we were. Um, speaking earlier about you know local businesses midwest block and brick right um midwest auto sales there's these cues all around you in central missouri that you're in the midwest you know um but i found that in the 19th century you know that that phrase didn't really exist there wasn't really a midwest and so when missourians talked about their regional identity they described themselves as Westerners. And so again, I think, you know, I think today we would, we would say Missouri is pretty much part of the Midwest, but you have to remember, I guess, that by the time the Civil War begins, Missouri is the westernmost state. Um, you know, there are settlers in the Oregon country, certainly, um, but Missouri was really the, the most sort of westernmost outpost of the established and settled United States. And so, Missourians were very conscious of that. And I think describing themselves as Westerners was also a way for them to reflect on the reality that so much of their population was composed of recent migrants. You know, so again, by the outbreak of the Civil War, Missouri is still a, a young state. And a lot of its residents are new arrivals from um, Kentucky, Virginia, um, you know, other places in sort of the upper south most commonly. And so taking on that mantle of being a Westerner was a way to say, you know, we're sort of no longer these things, you know, we're no longer Easterners or Virginians or Kentuckians, but we're, we're Missourians. And, you know, they did, they very much thought of Missouri as um, a place where the different sections of the country could mingle and come together. And that was reflected in their population. And that was reflected in their, their politics too, which is one of the reasons the Civil Wars present such a complicated you know, problem for them is they, they saw themselves as having a vested interest in the stability and success of the North and in the stability and success of the South. And so they find themselves really caught between extremes. And again, I think taking on that moniker of being Westerners was a way to reflect that they were sort of, they were composed of parts of the whole. Now, the Civil War is obviously a, a very, very popular subject matter um, in history and really in, in American culture. I mean, it's one of those subject matters when people focus on things, people often say, oh, I'm a Civil War buff, or I'm, I'm interested in the Civil War. 
in looking at your project, you know, you're looking at the the aftermath. You're looking at this commemoration of a war. So why is a commemoration of a war perhaps just as important as studying the war itself? I think that's a great question. It's one of the things, you know, that is kind of that I find, you know, challenging when I'm trying to explain to others what it exactly it is that I do as a historian. I say I study Civil War memory and it's not real clear automatically what that means, um, but you're exactly right. So, you know, by studying memory and studying commemorations, I'm not interested as much in, you know, the battles, campaigns, you know, commanders of the Civil War, although those are certainly important parts of the context. Um, but Civil War memory is about understanding why it is that people construct particular narratives of the past, why some versions or interpretations of history gain prominence and why others are sort of forgotten or sidelined or marginalized. And I think it's um, for that reason, the study of memory is really important because it helps us understand identity. I think it really helps us understand who we are, to borrow a phrase from um, one of the French scholars who sort of pioneered the study of memory. He said, it helps us understand who we are in light of what we are no longer. And that really stuck with me. So I think, you know, looking at that, how Missourians talked about and taught and again, celebrated and remembered their Civil War history is a really interesting way to, to understand what was important to them what their values were, how they thought of themselves, how they thought of their place in the nation. Um, and so again, I think it's a great way to get a sense of how these people thought about themselves and their identities and their contributions to the country. Okay. Now, as the war concludes, you have veterans on both sides who are joining organizations, you know, fraternal organizations, you know, political organizations. Uh, take us through, you know, you can go in detail, as much detail as you want, but take us through some of the organizations they're joining in this kind of Civil War commemoration. Some of them obviously Union, some of them obviously Confederate, but, you know, interestingly enough, there's a mix. There are some organizations that bring in veterans from both sides. Yeah, so these veterans organizations were a ton of fun. And as I said, you know, this was the part of the book that I really expanded on from the dissertation phase because these veterans were just endlessly fascinating to me. Um, so the main, the, I guess the largest two um, organizations I mentioned briefly before, but the Grand Army of the Republic was a society for Union veterans, and it was a national society, um, and it had a Missouri organization that was called the Department of Missouri, and within the Department of Missouri, there were dozens and dozens of posts is what they called their sort of local organizations. And what was really interesting to me about um, the Grand Army of the Republic and studying these posts is that, you know, they, they come and go over time, but over the course of the existence of the GAR, so from the end of the Civil War into the 1930s and 40s, um, these posts exist everywhere in the state. You know, I think we, we sort of tend to think of there being pockets of unionism in Missouri, like maybe St. Louis is a particularly union place and you might expect to find a lot of union veterans congregating there, but there are posts of the GAR in the Ozarks, there's posts of the GAR in, um, you know, in Little Dixie, all over the state, just dozens of these posts, extremely active and they've got tens of thousands of members, which I thought was really interesting too. 
Um, on the Confederate side of the equation, again, there was a national organization for Confederate veterans called the United Confederate Veterans. It, it came about a little bit later than the GAR. And so before it arrived on the scene, there was a, a, a Missouri specific Confederate association that was called the Ex-Confederate Association of Missouri. Um, and it ultimately became a part of the United Confederate Veterans, the Missouri Division. And they called their local societies camps. So you had camps of the United Confederate Veterans. And again, these organizations existed all across the state. But what surprised me again, as I, as I was delving into this research was how many more Union veterans there were. You know, um, the membership of the, the GAR totally overwhelmed the numbers that the Confederates had. And that surprised me. Again, I think the popular perception of Missouri is a, as a, a state with a lot of Confederate sentiment, but that certainly wasn't reflected in terms of the membership numbers of these societies. Now, the other thing I, I guess I wanna say about these societies is that um, they both had auxiliary organizations for women. And so I talk about those um, in my book as well. The Grand Army, the Republic had a couple of um, societies for women. I mostly deal with the Women's Relief Corps, which any, any woman who, who thought of herself as a loyal unionist could join. You did not have to have a relative in the Union Army to be a member. Um, and so they were extremely active and influential. And then on the Confederate side of the coin, um, famously, I think a lot of people are familiar with the United Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, which are still active today. And so that was a society uh, for women who had a blood relative in the Confederate Army. Um, and so those were, those were active across the state as well. Um, the GAR and the Women's Relief Corps in Missouri did admit um, African-American members. And that's something that we could, we could talk about a little bit more. Um, but not in very large numbers, and there seems to have been pretty pervasive discrimination um, against them in those societies. But you mentioned as well, um, one of the fascinating things about Missouri is the existence of a number of societies that had both Union and Confederate veteran members. Um, and there's, I, I came across references to maybe half a dozen of these, which I think is pretty exceptional. And again, a reflection of Missouri's really interesting geographic and cultural atmosphere. You know, it's a border state. Of course, there are Union and Confederate veterans living together in close proximity. And so they start hanging out. <laughs> um, the organizations that I spend the most time on in the book are the Veterans of the Blue and Gray, which was a St. Louis society that existed for just a couple of years at the end of the 19th century. Um, and then on the other side of the state in Kansas City, there was an organization called the Old Soldiers Association of the Blue and Gray that was um, slightly larger. Um, but again, both organizations were for Union and Confederate veterans. And it was really clear that these were places where veterans were interacting with one another um, on the basis you know, that they, they shared a common experience as combat veterans that they, um, they wanted to remember and to um, you know, draw attention to and to pay tribute to. But these blue and gray societies were also a way for them to sort of unite in the interests of veterans affairs. So in Kansas City, for example, those veterans are, you know, they're not just 
getting together and reminiscing about the their times in the Civil War, they're advocating for veterans to appear on ballots and to take up political offices in Kansas City politics. So I think those societies were a lot of fun for veterans, uh, but oftentimes they had you know, really specific kind of practical motivations for being involved in them as well. Now, thinking about, you kind of touched on there a little bit, you know, there is an inclusion to an extent of African-American soldiers um, who fought on the Union side during the Civil War, but there is an exclusion of them as well. So how do African-Americans and African-American soldiers commemorate the war themselves and how do they try to access their own you know fraternal veteran organization um, to commemorate the war yeah that's a great question and it's one that you know i feel like there's there's plenty of more research to be done um, in that direction i feel like i really sort of have only scratched the surface of that with with my book um, you know one of the the problems for understanding the experiences of black veterans in missouri is that um, there's fewer of them, you know, so like I mentioned, there's, there's 20,000 some members of the grand white members of the Grand Army of the Republic, but um, there just aren't that many black veterans in Missouri, um, and that their life expectancies are shorter. So the most active sort of periods for these veterans associations were right around the turn of the century. And by that point, you know, again, there are fewer African American veterans in the area to begin with. Um, and their mortality rates are higher. So they're, they're not as able to, I think, engage in some of these commemorations for that, that reason. But um, as you suggested, there's also obvious evidence of discrimination. Um, I only found, you know, in reading through decades of the proceedings of the Missouri Grand Army of the Republic, I only found a couple of instances where the presence of black veterans was openly spoken about um, and on one of those occasions, you know, it was pretty clear that the black veterans were raising issues about, you know, concerns about their safety and the challenges that they faced in terms of encountering segregation in Missouri. So segregation was a problem. There was open discrimination within the Grand Army of the Republic against black veterans. Um, in order for a new post to form or for veterans to join the society, they had to be voted upon. So that gave white veterans a lot of control over whether or not, you know, black men would be able to join or whether or not they would be able to establish new posts. Um, and this was a problem, I should say, not just in Missouri, but across the GAR, so much so that um, in 1887 in their, their national meeting, um, it was a, a point of contention where black veterans gathered and said, you know, we're not even we can't even form posts because we're being stonewalled effectively by by white veterans. So it was it was certainly a larger problem, but um, but also a pronounced problem in Missouri. So, of course, black communities and black veterans are you know are going to look for other avenues for commemorating their Civil War experiences. And certainly, the most remarkable thing I think that black veterans in Missouri do um, is use their history of service in the Civil War to press for access to the vote and for equal access to education. Uh, Black veterans in St. Louis organized to, you know, press the state government for suffrage. They're not successful in doing that until the passage of the 15th Amendment, but they're certainly making the case that, you know, we fought 
and bled for this country and for the state and we deserve equal access to the vote, especially they said, if you're gonna give it to ex-Confederates, you know, we have every much, um, you know, every bit as much a right to participate as, as those men do. Um, but um, again, I think their most remarkable success comes through their fight for education. So uh, black Missourians who served in the Union Army, many of them end up in Texas towards the end of the war um, and their duties at the conclusion of the war are relatively light. And so they've got time and they devote that time to education. And so when they are mustered out, they want an opportunity to continue that education back home. And so they start raising money to construct a school for black Missourians. And of course, the result of their effort um, is Lincoln University in Jefferson City, which is astonishing to me. It's the only, the only institution of higher learning in the country established by veterans, Civil War veterans. Um, and it was established by black veterans. And so I think that was a very direct way that these black Missourians communicated, you know, we're going to make the outcome of the war matter and use that to channel, um, you know, positive direction for our future in this state in terms of getting equal access to education. The gains of the war are going to be channeled directly into uh, progress for Black Missourians as a whole. In present day, there are certainly debates about you know what to do with confederate monuments and memorials not only in missouri uh, but really around the country and that's something that continues on as we speak at the time we're doing this you know one of the interesting stories that really came out of your, out of your book was the really contested origins of the confederate memorial uh, monument that existed in forest park uh, take us through that origin story so i think it's really fascinating to think about you know, we think of today there being debates over, but there was a pretty intense conversation about even putting it up um, 100 plus years ago. Absolutely. Yeah, that was one of the things that was, that was also really fun and, and interesting to me about this research. You know, again, I think it's totally a reflection of Missouri's unique position as a border state, its unique regional position. You know, again, this is a place where you've got large numbers of Union and Confederate veterans living in close proximity. They cannot avoid one another. You know, like they could say, if you're a Confederate veteran living in Atlanta, you can feel pretty confident that you can promote your version of Civil War history without anybody telling you no. Um, although Black Southerners might have wanted to, they didn't have the power to do that um, in, you know, places like the Deep South. So in Missouri, you have this this atmosphere where it's entirely likely that people are going to directly clash over their interpretations of the war. And so that's exactly what happened, um, as you say, in St. Louis. And this was certainly not the first time that Union and Confederate veterans had challenged one another in Missouri. Um, about the time that the Missouri Confederate home was constructed, that was in 1890, Union veterans had already, uh, in Missouri, had already protested against displays of the Confederate flag, calling it an emblem of treason and rebellion. Um, and so we, about five, six years later, we get to um, 1905 and uh, a group of former Confederates, men and women in St. Louis decide they want to erect this Confederate monument in Forest Park. And the backlash is immediate and it immediately forces the Confederates to change their plans for the design of the monument 
Um, the Union veterans made it really clear this cannot be a traditional soldier monument. We don't want to see anything that's going to glorify the cause of the Confederacy. Um, and so the individuals who are planning this monument, you know, say, okay, okay, well, here's a compromise. We'll, we'll have this be a monument to the spirit of the Confederacy, and we're not going to show a soldier in arms. We're going to show a family unit and the you know young man of this family will be preparing to go to war so you know he's a confederate and this family unit is evoking the dedication that southerners had to the confederacy but it's not going to glorify the confederate nation or glorify the confederate military in any way so there this this constant process of negotiation and then you know even that's not enough to satisfy union veterans they are successful at various points and um, having the city reject its permission for them to place the monument on, you know, city property. So there's a negotiation about whether or not it's appropriate to, to place in the city. Maybe it should be at Jefferson Barracks and not in a public park. And there's back and forth, back and forth. And it goes on for about a decade. Um, the monument isn't finally unveiled until 1914. And the controversy only escalates at that point because despite all the, the back and forth that members of the Grand Army, the Republic and this Confederate Monument Association have had over the design of the monument when it's finally <laughs> unveiled. And this was certainly, I think, done intentionally on the part of the ex-Confederates. You know, yeah, it doesn't glorify the Confederate nation as such. It doesn't glorify the Confederate military as such, but there's this huge inscription on the back of the monument that the Union folks hadn't seen that talked about the sublime patriotism of Confederates and how their cause was just and how they were the bravest and manliest soldiers to have ever lived. Um, and so that that really angered the Union veterans who said, you know, we were a part of these good faith negotiations with you about, you know, what this monument could and should look like. And now we see this inscription that does everything that, you know, that, that we oppose, glorifying the Confederacy, glorifying um, Confederate soldiers. And so we have this brilliant speech in the collections of the State Historical Society, a Union veteran gives a lecture calling uh, the monument, uh, his title is Monumental Misrepresentations, right? That this monument has totally perpetuated this distorted idea of the Confederacy and of Confederate history and that basically it's an abomination and that it's an insult to every loyal Missourian. Um, and so he gives this speech to his fellow Union veterans and they encourage him to send a copy to the State Historical Society. Um, so that it can be archived and preserved. And I think that indicates again how strong their opposition was. They didn't want this monument to um, seem that it was uncontested. You know, not only were they going to speak out against it, but they wanted a permanent record of their opposition um, in the archives. Um, but of course the monument stayed um, until very recently, um, just within the last year or so that monument was um, disassembled. And my understanding is that it will be moved to the new Civil War Museum in St. Louis. Uh, but I, as of now, it's it's in sort of semi-permanent storage. Um, but so, you know, I think that's a really interesting sort of case study of how these fights over Civil War commemoration have come full circle. As you said, Sean, there's really 
nothing new under the sun in terms of this, you know, that monument was controversial in 2015 and in 2017, um, but it was controversial in 1905 and in 1914 as well. So a long process of fighting over what the history of the, the war means to Missourians, meant to Missourians. Yeah, that's extremely fascinating, yeah, with that origin story. Um, now, going forward a little bit, um, you will be the featured speaker at the fall lecture series for the State Historical Society of Missouri on November 7th. Um, so give us a little, uh, a little sample of kind of what your focus is going to be on in that presentation, what you're going to talk about and kind of what you want the audience to kind of come and hear about. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this. Again, this feels like sort of coming full circle for me, um, you know, having the opportunity to present at the State Historical Society. Um, again, feels like a real accomplishment. I started researching, you know, Civil War Missouri and the archives there for the first time back in 2007 when it was Western Historical Manuscripts. So it's been a part of my life and my work for a long time. And so I'm really excited to have the opportunity to come speak. And so I'm going to talk about the aspects of my book that deal with the contributions of Missouri's women to Civil War commemoration. I think because I found the veterans so fascinating and because they were so active and engaged, you know, when I've talked about this work, I've tended to focus on, on these men. And I wanna be sure I'm calling attention to the contributions of Missouri's women to Civil War commemoration because they were incredibly influential. So. I'm gonna talk about the women who were involved in the union organization, the Women's Relief Corps, um, also in the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And what much of this talk will focus on um, will be the efforts of these women to construct veterans homes in Missouri. So again, one of the really unique things about Missouri, you know, alongside having these blue and gray veterans societies, Missouri is the first state in the country to fund homes for both Union and Confederate veterans. And neither of those homes would have been constructed without the monumental efforts of Missouri's women to make them a reality. Um, and in undertaking those efforts, these women, you know, not only were preserving Civil War history and calling attention to the sacrifices of, of men and of veterans, but by organizing and funding these homes, they were also laying the foundations for public welfare initiatives in Missouri, which have transformed, right, the relationship of Missourians to their state government. Um, so I think it's, it has a, an importance and a, an effect that transcends the Civil War period and transcends Civil War commemoration and again really affects the way that we interact with our, our state, uh, particularly our state government to this day. All right, well, thank you very much for joining me today, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. <laughs>